Welcome back or welcome to the Single Track Podcast. I'm your host, Finn Melanson, and in this episode, we're talking with Jonathan Albin, a professional trail runner for the North Face based in Ramsdal, Norway, who recently won the prestigious CCC race in Chamonix, France earlier this summer, and in the process, punched his ticket to next year's Western States 100. This conversation covers his early outlook for Western States, his training methodology, and various miscellaneous topics like group training dynamics among elite athletes, and specializing at various distances and terrains in our sport. Before we get started, though, I am really excited to announce a new partnership between Single Track and Knack. Knack will be the nutrition sponsor for this show through at least the end of 2024. They offer the complete range of products, energy, hydration, recovery, in the form of bars, waffles, drink mixes, protein powders, and purees, all specifically for ultra trail runners. They're a B Corps certified company, and there's a lot more I'll say about their team and what I like about their products over the course of the next few months and beyond. But one thing I recommend checking out right now is their race day nutrition quiz on their website, which goes through a whole battery of questions based on your goals, stomach sensitivity, sweat rate, and way more to create an actionable, detailed plan for your race day nutrition. If you're curious to learn more or to try some of their products yourself, head over to their website and use code SINGLETRACK15 in all capital letters at checkout for 15% off your purchase. And with that, let's get this show started. Jonathan Albin, it is great to have you on the Single Track Podcast. How are you doing today? Uh, no, thanks for having me. I'm, um, yeah, I'm doing pretty good. I can't bury the lead. You accepted a golden ticket a few weeks ago to next year's Western States, and I'm curious about it because I feel like there is a bit to unpack here. I saw on one of your recent Instagram posts both that you are not quite sure how you feel about it, but also that next year's running season will definitely look different compared to previous years. So I guess the question for me is two-parted. A, do you feel like at this point uh, in time, your heart is in it? And B, are you definitely clearing your schedule for this? Like, is this going to be a main priority A-type race for you? Yeah, my heart is definitely in it. I think uh, like when I found out I had two weeks to decide whether I was going to accept or not. I mean, I've just finished running 100K. I'm not exactly feeling sprightly. So at that time, like, it's not that my heart wasn't in it, maybe just more of like, oh, the thought of running so far is a little bit fresh after, after CCC. But no, I did accept and I accepted like, um, because Western States is one of those classic big races that I would love to do. And also a lot of stuff in my running career has kind of happened kind of by accident. And I've just followed along with it. And I really like that and that's when I've had the most success where I felt like things have made most sense and I didn't even really know that it was a golden ticket race I just qualified so then it's like kind of felt like well maybe this is not meant to be but maybe this is meant to be and the more I've thought about it the more I've um, decided what a fun challenge it's going to be for me I've run that far before but not really in a in a standard trail race really different to what I focused on in the previous years so a new challenge it's a little bit early for me to be honest as well having like a lot of my training skiing in the winter to have a hundred miler in June is like uh, is late June I guess but it's still uh, relatively far so my training is going to have to be different through the winter and that's going to then affect what races I can do uh, in the latter part of the season as well so yeah my, my season will look really different next year to what it to what it has done. 
I was just going to ask you, because like, you know, obviously you, you had the world champs in Innsbruck earlier this year, and that was, did that end up being an eight or a nine hour race? No, for me, I did the short trail, short. That's true. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, no, no. It's still, it's still a marathon, but that was still only something like, was it four, 415, I think, because it was, uh, yeah, 45, 50K or something. I forget, I forget exactly. But yeah, it was an effort. I guess where I was going with that question was, in theory at least, do you see a marked difference in even the jump between the 100K distance and the 100-mile distance when you start thinking about your season? Like, If a race like CCC was injected into May or June of this year, would, would you feel the same? Would you feel, I don't want to say intimidation, but sort of this this different level of awareness and perhaps that that same need to clear a lot of stuff in your winter season to optimize the prep for it? Yeah, I think for sure the winter training is going to be really different and I'm going to have to put a lot more eggs in this in this basket, especially like I mentioned, the skiing, that's that's one thing. So normally I do use a lot of cross training in the winter, do a big training sort of like load and I can do that because it's a lot less impact on the legs. Whereas now my legs are going to have to be acclimatized to running really far relatively early. And that normally goes fine. And by the time UTMB week comes around, just naturally racing and training, running more um, means my legs are prepared. Whereas now this is going to be quite early and I'm going to have to uh, change up how I'm approaching the winter. But I'm, I'm adamant that I'm going to do this my way. I still want to ski. I still believe in having like a big load is really helpful. But I'm going to have to add in some more running, which is challenging here because all the terrain, even the roads are snowed down for a long time so there'll be a lot of treadmill running there maybe some customized shoes for the road something with a little bit higher stack a little bit of cushioning but still a few little studs in the front maybe um and then some well-planned training type camp travels so i still want to spend the majority of my time at home because that's where i'm happiest i feel healthiest and i train best and recover best but i'm going to have to go away every now and then for maybe a week 10 days at a time to do some hotter running hopefully at altitude so that means I can hopefully um, stay acclimatized a little bit to the heat, acclimatize a little bit to the altitude and keep that leg um, specific sort of like pounding ability there over the winter, which normally goes away completely. Normally it's like a, a complete reset that through at least January, February, I'm not really hardly running it at all, maybe up to 30k a week in february so that's not going to be the case this year i'm going to have to maybe run a little bit more so the leg acclimatization doesn't completely go away i kind of maintain it on the training camp front does that look like a southern hemisphere destination for you or one of these european islands like when you start to rack your brain for you know where you could go in the winter um a place that incorporates some level of specificity or tailors to the demands of a race like western states where could you see yourself going I think like uh, we have loosely discussed it, and I think one of the easiest places for us to get to would be Gran Canaria because there's some of these uh, winter flights for people going for a bit of sun during the, the winter. It's, uh, you can get relatively high there, I think, and it will be like warm-ish. So I think that could work really well. But then what I didn't touch on before was the fact that I'm also going to have to plan in a longer preparation race earlier than I would have had to do as well. So we're still looking at options for those, but that will probably be on the European side as well. Uh, we're thinking maybe Transvulcania, um, 
but that's relatively close this year because it's been pushed back a little bit. So I don't know, it'll be interesting. We've still not completely nailed everything down. And it's my wife, Henrietta, who really helps with the logistics because I very much like to concentrate on training, on sort of like keeping, yeah, the weight of all those sort of like details off my shoulders. So we'll, we'll be sitting down together to, to try and sort of like camera out a plan once this season is over because I've still got uh, at least one more race left. So. Do you anticipate heading over to the u.s early and and maybe spending a fair bit of time on the course in may maybe in early june and sort of like you know step on every mile of that course i certainly don't think i need to step on every single inch mainly because sometimes i actually prefer to recce courses in sections than have fresh new sections in between so you kind of link up the sections that you've recced so that would be that would definitely be useful to step on some of the course, but I don't really feel like I need to spend months and months on the course. And I don't think I'll be coming over before maybe three weeks before. And at that point, I'll try and get on the course almost immediately when I arrive, see some of it and get a feel for it and then go and have some fun. I mean, at the end of the day, it's like a trip to the state should be enjoyed. So maybe we'll go to like Yosemite or somewhere relatively uh, close by, but still somewhere away so I can uh, kind of like concentrate on enjoying myself as well because I mean I have kind of found this year especially that if I get too focused on stuff I can really drag myself down I can put a lot of pressure on myself and I need to kind of keep it light and fun as well so I need to try and find a better balance with that next year and um, I'll certainly have that sort of like in my mind uh, preparing for western states like I've often I've really felt like sometimes for me it's better to not look directly at the um the goal and sort of like see it out the side of your vision kind of and sort of like you know it's there but you're not sort of really hammering for it because if I do that usually I end up accidentally preparing myself far too well far too early and it's kind of like you you just kind of feel like you peak and then it's a few weeks and then the race comes whereas if you don't sort of like I don't know it's a really hard thing to explain but it's something I have noticed especially in the latter part of the season. So maybe this will be better because it's earlier in the season. And normally then my good good shape can last longer um, from having the skiing and then getting back into running. So we'll see. It's like uh, it's a new, exciting journey for me. And I'm excited to see how it goes. I have so many follow-up questions off this. I think the first, you know, is if you look at CCC, it's one of the three or four races in the Golden Ticket Series that happen eight nine months pre-Western States, you know, for example, Jim Walmsley just qualified at Nice maybe uh, a week or two ago, and we've got the Havelina 100 later this month. And and where I'm going with this is whether it requires a lot of athletes like yourself to at least loosely commit to this race this far in advance. Like, has there ever been a race, a comparable race in your career where you've had to commit to it or decide this far in advance and then work backward? And, and are you okay with that? Like, do, do you prefer that type of built-in certainty or is it more like you said earlier where things have sort of fallen into your lap in terms of opportunity as seasons have rolled by and and you roll with the punches yeah I think this is definitely one of the races where I've said I'm definitely going to be going because normally I'll say I'll go to something and I know I'm going to go but I always leave myself a bit of wiggle room and think ah maybe maybe it's not going to be sort of the the right time or maybe it's it's not going to work out. Whereas definitely with this, I'm thinking, okay, I have to change so much of my preparation through the winter for it. It's definitely hammered in. And um, 
Yeah, I don't know. Like, I think uh, I, I I can see it as me making like a big leap to say yes, but then also that that little bit of randomness and that sort of like question, uh, the the offer for me to actually go came up a bit sort of like randomly. So it does feel uh, the right decision to make. And I'm generally quite excited about a little bit of a change. I think the past two, three years have been relatively similar for me since Corona. And also training with Killian and Petter, um, I don't think either of them are going to be doing Westerns. So that means my training has to be different to theirs. And I think last year I did get a little bit bogged down in sort of like training, uh, not exactly like them, but we were a little training group and it was pretty hard psychologically to think that we might be going to the exact same races. So then automatically in training, you start sort of like comparing yourself to each other a little bit and stuff. Whereas now it's going to be completely completely different and I'll obviously join them for some sessions but I'll also have to be doing some stuff alone which usually I prefer a little bit fascinating and I want to come back shortly to your comment about group training psychology I think that's a really interesting topic to unpack but staying on the state's thread a bit longer what is ultimately what's the biggest draw of this race to you is it the history of the race is it the course is it the competition like if you if you had to pick one factor that is most compelling to you what is it and why i think probably maybe the history of the race when people say 100 milers they talk about utmb and they talk about western states uh so that's just like really fun that like i guess i've known about it for many many years and always known i wanted to do it and now it feels like the right time for me to go and do it so yeah it's just one of those races like uh Everyone seems to have heard about it. But then also, it's completely different to UTMB in a sense. It's so much smaller. Not that I've, I've been there, but it is kind of like a little bit more sort of like of a personal experience. There's a lot less people. Uh, it's kind of like you and the race rather than you, a thousand people in Chamonix and, and the race. So I am kind of like, I like... Uh, I, I, I struggle with Chamonix being so busy. Like I'm not a people person, really. I'm not a crowd person. And I'm kind of looking forward to being able to sort of like walk around Tahoe and just see a few people getting a coffee and those people are probably going to be racing. And I think that will suit me way better. Uh, and then also the fact that I've not done it before, I don't, I wouldn't class myself as like a favorite. It's kind of going to be more of like, a, a challenge and experience for me obviously I want to do as well as I can do and the execution is really important to me but with a lot of races it's that sort of like weight I put on myself of expectation whereas I've got a lot less expectation with this because I've not I've not done it before it'll just be a, a new challenge a bit of uh, a fresh sort of uh, yeah race for me to to see how it goes but obviously I'm always going to be giving it my absolute all I'll prepare as well as I can do for it and i'll be giving it absolutely everything on the day but it's just sort of like different to anything i've done before when you when you think about your skill set in this sport um what do you anticipate having an advantage on when it comes to this course and what do you anticipate being at least in the present moment your disadvantages that perhaps you really have to be focused on in this build-up i think to be honest actually my running stride is one of my um stronger points and a lot of people think from the sky running background that like steep climbs is where I really uh, sort of like have an advantage on other athletes but actually my steeper running is actually one of my weakest um, yeah things so I think actually the the how runnable it is might actually suit me 
but then again, it's sort of like soon after ski season. So I need to have my legs acclimatized to that running so I can use that running stride and they don't stiffen up. And then it's kind of like I'm unable to, to sort of like benefit from that. But I actually think the how runnable the course will be will be something that will suit me. But then I do know who I'll be racing. They also choose this race for that fact. And Jim's got a great, great running stride. Like he, he's good on runnable stuff. And there's a lot of athletes which are really better on the runnable stuff, which I might not have raced before because I've been doing some steeper stuff maybe. And um, maybe it's not so much an advantage over them because they've got such a sort of like strong flat stride as well. Uh, but then the heat is probably what's gonna I'm going to struggle with the most, I would have thought. Like whenever I've talked to anyone about Western States, the next word out of their mouth is always hot. Uh, so that will be interesting, especially going from ski season. Like I'm going to be more used to skiing in minus 10 than I will be sort of like running around in the heat. But I've already thought about working with North Face on some different ideas I've got for, say, like ice vests and stuff or different ways I can pull myself off. And um, I generally think that if I go into the race happy, healthy, and just generally feeling strong, then I'm going to be able to handle the heat. Whereas I might be maybe 1% better prepared, but I've already done a lot of heat acclimatization, really ground myself down, and then just be feeling a bit weak and a bit sort of like overused, then things will go worse. So I'm going to really try and strike that fine balance of acclimatizing, but still keeping myself sort of like really functional and feeling happy and, and healthy, which I think is what I got right for CCC this year. My shape was less good than last year, but I was feeling happier, healthy and ready to, to hurt. And finding that balance is, is really difficult. So I've always classified you uh, as a student of the game. Like you, it's readily apparent you're very interested in the literature out there, all things training philosophy, getting better over the long haul, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm imagining that at a lot of the races you've prepared for, um, you know, you've probably looked at historical times, historical athletes, what they've done, maybe tried to reverse engineer certain things that have piqued your interest. You mentioned Jim Walmsley, some other athletes that have had success here, but just based on what you know and who you followed in the sport, is there anything particularly interesting that, that you haven't mentioned yet that you've studied about this race or that you've paid attention to and that you've learned about and, and maybe you're going to start tinkering with it in your, your training these next couple months? Uh, I, I don't know. Like, um, normally I, I do look at data quite a lot and it actually interests me more normally when there's not as many times the, the course has been run or it's not as hammered because then it's sort of like a little bit more interesting to try and look at grade adjusted paces and then try and assess where you're going to be and when, but I guess Jim especially has perfected running this thing. And it's always kind of harsh that then you take it on as a challenge when someone else has spent years and years really finding the best way for them, at least, of, of nailing the course. Whereas I just turn up and things have got faster over the past years, definitely, mainly because athletes are getting faster, I guess, but also people are running courses more often and finding that sort of like best way of uh, executing it. So it's going to be interesting for me to turn up a little be a little bit sort of like um, fresh to it and try and execute as well as someone that's done it many times before, which will, I guess, will be uh, a drawback having not done it before, but then also maybe a benefit that I see something or I'm not as sort of uh, psychologically limited in some way. I don't know. It's going to be really fun just to get there and see how it goes because 
what I notice the most is people do slow down at the end, but it's, a, it's 100 miles. Of course, you slow down, but then being a bit runnable, it's like, why should you have to slow down? But then I guess there is like the heat and the managing yourself. And I don't know, it's a long way. I'm looking forward to seeing seeing how it goes as much as everyone else is, I think. Last question on the Western States front. Uh, really liked what you said earlier about how, you know, no matter what you're going to do this training block for Western States your way. And I find that interesting because, you know, I mean, I look at one of your teammates on the North face, for example, Katie Scheid, who is obviously passionate about being in the mountains through the seasons year round. And from what I understand, she, she foregoed a lot of her winter skiing season to get her running legs under her and, and really to prepare specifically for States um, and, you know, maybe she takes a different approach in future years, but it seemed to be the right move for her in this past year's context. But like in your case, what, what type of confidence are you drawing from? Like, are there any athletes out there who you've talked with, who've perhaps done something similar, opening up their seasons with a big race following a ski season and, and they've still performed really well and, and been pretty close to potential? I guess it's kind of dangerous saying what Killian has done is kind of, but then it's like it, it, Killian has done massive um, ski ski months and then been able to sort of hit the ground running and do big races or do big training weeks. But then Killian isn't normal, so I always try not to sort of like directly copy Killian or use him in, as an example because he does seem to be a little bit different to most people. But then. Um, I'd probably try and use that psychological ability uh, that he has in order to do something like that and just say, well, why not? Why not me? Why can't I go from doing not relatively low mileage because I will be trying to keep my miles up, but why can't I suddenly switch into, into running mode and why shouldn't it go well? So using that maybe Alex Honnell kind of no big deal mentality that if it's no big deal, you'll just get on with it and you will be able to do it. But what I do know is for, in order for that to happen, I need to be bulletproof uh in regards to sort of like little niggles injuries or biomechanic biomechanic problems that I might have and I do know that I have been struggling with my left foot it's kind of like a bit bent in I guess is the non-scientific way of putting it and that has affected how much running mileage I can do in the past two years so I need to strengthen that kind of like get the arch a little bit more up and try and straighten it out uh, so that will hopefully just make a little bit less aches and pains under the feet and just make things work a lot smoother. So that's something I'm really going to look into trying to uh, fix definitely in the next couple of months and probably do a lot more of those really tiny, boring strength prehab and rehab exercises that I'm terrible at because I've always thought, oh, they just don't do anything. I'd rather go out for a run. But I think I'm going to have to really try and get a lot more um, strict with myself in doing that sort of thing because any little weakness that I might have if I do suddenly turn up the mileage um, in a short amount of time it's going to pretty soon come to light and cause bigger problems so I'm already thinking about all that sort of stuff uh, now. Thanks to Rabbit for sponsoring this episode. Fall is here and that means comfortable but cooler weather. It's the time of year I turn to my favorite sweatpants. They're called the Jog Arounds and they're made by Rabbit. If you're curious and you want to get a pair, head over to their website and use code SINGLETRACK20 at checkout for 20% off your next order. Also, thanks to Kodiak Cakes for sponsoring this episode. Kodiak makes my favorite pancake mix. 
and it doesn't just taste great. It's also 100% whole grain and packed with 14 grams of protein per serving, so you can facilitate recovery immediately post-run. If you want to grab a few boxes for your post-run breakfast routine like I do, head over to their website and use code SINGLETRACK15 at checkout for 15% off your next order. With that, let's get back to the show. <laughs> All right, as I was as I was mentioning offline, I have listened to almost every podcast you've ever been on. I've watched all your YouTubes. And for a while now, I've had this running list of just interesting training insights and opinions that you've talked about over the years. And I've got this long list. And so, you know, I might not be able to follow up on every single one of them, but I want to get through as many as I can. The first one that sort of piqued my interest was when you said that in a lot of your training, you're spending a lot more time at race pace to become an efficient runner instead of following this sort of traditional 80-20 easy breakdown. So talk about the rationale there and what the ultimate benefit is and and why you might chafe against this whole, you know, 80-20 philosophy. Yeah, I mean, it's really hard for me, like, maybe I am following 80-20, it just really depends on how you define 80-20. It's like, it's where, what is 80 and what is 20? Is zone 1 and 2 in the 80 or is zone one, two, and three in the eight? Or is over threshold in zone four just the twenty? Or I'm not entirely sure where the line is drawn. So then I'm not entirely sure how uh, my training would be categorized into that. Whereas what I I do know is I used to be trying to do a lot of really slow stuff and then a lot of harder stuff, and then I was really very rarely running at race effort, which then didn't make much sense. And in the past years, I've done a lot more zone two, a lot more sort of that middle intensity, which is neither sort of really slow plodding or really hard pushing. And I do find that that has given me a big uh, boost in both um, getting more efficient at running, because that is what turns into kind of race pace in these longer races. So getting more efficient at that sort of uh, that race pace. And then also, especially if you use a form of cross training like skiing or biking, you can get a lot more bang for your buck and you can spend fewer hours, say, working at a harder effort and getting more gains um, without spending hours and hours and hours out plodding and then not really feeling like you've actually trained because that's that's how I'd feel. If I go out and do six hours in low zone one, I kind of end up feeling like I get home and I just feel kind of tired, but like I haven't really achieved anything. Whereas if I go out and do a good quality two to three hours in zone two, I feel like I've had more fun because I've moved a bit faster, got some more endorphins and just been out there crushing it kind of. Uh, and then I get an extra two, three hours to, to chillax and, and rest, uh, which I just found a lot more fun and it worked really well for me. Um, there's no one great training uh, system for anyone you've got to find what works for you and if anything maybe because I did a few years of that really slow and harder stuff then when I switched to the sort of like more gray area training and including a lot of that um, then maybe that's why I saw such improvements but ultimately I think um, to do more running at the effort level of the race is a bulletproof way of getting prepared you just need to find a way to do it without getting injured uh, so that's why the cross training and uh, using things like a, there's a gondola here, a, uh, a lift so I can do 700 meter climb, take the lift down, do the 700 meter climb again. So just finding any way that I can spend more time working harder, but then not having that injury risk from the, the pounding and running. 
Do you find that, and it could be the case that you don't, but do you find that with a lot of this gray area zone training, you are compromising your ability to run particularly hard in any given session or that it's harder to, you know, rise to the occasion for a lot of these sharpening type workouts where, you know, maybe you're running above threshold, stuff like that? Yeah, I I definitely would do. And I I think that's maybe where I screw up a little bit in the spring because usually I do a lot of base training in the winter and that means a lot of zone two. And then it's that transition into more sharpening training just before the race, which is like psychologically you don't want to stop doing the load because you want to keep your numbers up and you want to sort of like keep training a lot because you're used to training a lot. But at some point you do need to do much slower uh, sessions and much faster sessions and have more um difference between them and that is something i do before big races but especially shorter races so i can i can push harder so then that's why i try i break the whole year up no, normally into sort of base building sharpening tapering and then recovery after the race just so i can do that big that big base and then i can um sharpen that base or specify that fitness that i've made for a race and then recover but for an ultra, it's a little bit different because, again, race pace is that more sort of zone two type speed. So that means I have a longer sharpening period, but the sharpening period looks a bit like base training as well. And normally break it up into three week blocks. So I have sort of more of an endurance week, then a specific week and then more of a rest week with one really hard workout in there. Just because working out hard does give you good fitness boost. It's just you. there's no point doing it week after week after week because that's not race pace. You just want to get um, the gains from it from doing as little as possible and then not sort of like doing too much because then fatigue increases and the injury risk increases too. All right. Another question, and it's funny. I'm actually, I'm reading training for the uphill athlete right now. And I think I saw this workout in the book. I'm not sure if you or Killian contributed it, but I've heard you talk about these alternating short burst, high cadence low cadence reps on these steep uphills to get better, to get more efficient at uphill running. Why do these work? Uh, I, I, I'm not, I think like, I guess maybe it was Killian's influence that got it into uphill athlete. And I think it was a big cycling workout before that maybe, or I'm not sure like, like who, who invents these sort of like different training sessions, but definitely I found that 30 thirties really work because you get a lot of bang for your buck. Uh, so you, you don't have to sort of like push hard for a really long time uh, in order to get the same gains as sort of like a really short, hard interval session because it does allow you to push harder than you think you can. So that way you can tap into going much harder than psychologically uh, you, you thought. And that's why it's really good for me, especially because when you do a lot of long, slow, slowish training or a lot of the sort of like more gray air type training to then push really hard just feels unnatural and it feels horrible whereas this kind of like breaks it up in a way that you get it done not without noticing it but it makes it a lot easier to push much harder for a longer amount of time what you do is you spend 30 seconds going over threshold really quite hard and then 30 seconds uh working out like more tempo efforts are just under threshold and then you alternate between the two and yeah psychologically that's a lot easier than just saying i'm going to go out and go really hard for six minutes breaking up like that uh, makes it a lot easier to do do more reps uh, and there was another reason as well but i've just it's just uh, flown away from me why uh why the alternating cadence though like why are you switching between a high cadence and then you know a longer cadence 
Uh, high cadence, okay. I've I've completely missed the workout. So high cadence, low cadence. So uh, I, I thought we were on 30-30s, which was sort of like going over threshold. So, we're, we're, so you can just take my answer there and just move it to another question. But the high cadence, low cadence. Now, this is something that really worked for me, and it was Killian that recommended it to me. And I think it's worked for a few different athletes. And what you do is you, you take a big hill and you do maybe a couple of minutes, really high cadence, fast feet. And then you do a few minutes of really big bounding type strides. And then you alternate between those two. And this was really powerful for me because I'd never actually worked on my uphill running stride. And I think I've got quite a natural, naturally good flat running stride. And when you run on the flat, your feet kind of like end up in a straight line. Like when you're running on a beach, you'll look and your footsteps are almost in a straight line. Whereas when you run really steep uphill, if you try and step over your next foot when it's that steep, that's too big of a step and it's really tiring and it's inefficient. So running behind Killian, I was blown away by the fact that it kind of looked like his feet are underneath his shoulders more. And he's, that means he can have a much higher cadence and then just sort of like float up rather than spending too much energy trying to take a too big step every time. And OK, I, I realized that that was like a problem for me. My uphill stride wasn't good, but how to get a good one. And running drills are like a known way to improve your stride. And this one is just a running drill for going uphill. So the, the high cadence, it forces you to be able to always take another step. And it sort of like trains that sort of like speed side of your running stride. And then the big steps that, that trains that sort of like slower, more powerful, heavy leg feeling. And when you're running uphill, you, you'll naturally have to take a few little steps. And sometimes you have to take a bigger step. And this stresses both ends of the spectrum. So then what you're left with is a much better uphill running stride. And it really did work for me. And it's something that I started doing two years ago and noticed an improvement and then still do today. I did it yesterday with the five kilogram weighted vest and then took the, the lift down afterwards. Interesting. So you're, you're a believer in the weighted vest too. That works for you. Yeah. Like, um, Maybe that's from the obstacle racing days, but I think anything to stress the system. And if I've done, say, that running drill so much that I'm not really getting the right burn from it, because it's really meant to be your legs, which are the limiting factor, not really your breathing. Uh, so then if I'm not really feeling like I'm getting anything from the workout, then you need to change things up and you need to try and um, get the stimulus in some way. And adding weight is a great way to do it because then you take the weight off and you feel lighter, you feel faster and you feel bouncier. Uh, again, it's just trying to limit the injury risk. So having something like a lift or like, I don't know, carrying some water or something and emptying it out on the top before you run down, just doing whatever you can to try and sort of like keep your legs from getting injured so you can do even more training and, um, and not get any problems. Another interesting point you made is that uh, you disagree with this this idea of simply taking you know road and track fundamentals and pouring them over to you know a trail running or a mountain running training block. Um, I'm sure we could probably do an entire episode on this, but what are some of the uh, what what are some of the main reasons why you balk at this and you think things have to be fundamentally different? Um, ultimately training for a road race and a trail race, they are completely different things and you're going to be working a completely different way. So just simply taking a, uh, a road plan and then doing some of the workouts on the trail isn't something that I've like ever believed is works that well. 
And say, for instance, like that leg conditioning that you really need for trail running is just something you don't really work on as much with road running. You get leg conditioning to run on the road from running on the road because that's just part of your training. That's what's programmed. But there's no thought process into, okay, I'm going to be running a thousand meter uphill and then a thousand meter downhill and then a thousand meter uphill. My legs are going to get trashed on that thousand meter downhill. Then they have to work again for the following uphill. So you need to really think long and hard about what race profile you've got in front of you and how you can prepare your legs specifically for that. And that's just one thing, which is sort of like totally unheard of, I think, for uh, road runners because they are getting that leg acclimatization. It's just it's just coming from the workouts. If I was going to do a road marathon, I'd have to think, okay, I need to have my legs acclimatized to running on the road. So then I'd have specific sessions to make sure that my legs aren't going to get absolutely pounded in the first couple of K running running on the road and it's sort of like splitting out those two things I think is one of the key things you've got your fitness and then you've got your leg acclimatization and you need to have both really well nailed for a trail race because there's no point being really fit if you completely destroy yourself on the first downhill Um, so that's that's one reason I think what you said there about how fitness can go out the window at a moment's notice or be jeopardized because of the you know, I guess we can call it the musculoskeletal demands of that first downhill in races, especially ones with the more drawn out descents is something I hoped the audience picked up on there. I think that's, that's key, but maybe an underappreciated takeaway for how we prep for races. Um, but anyways, I'm just thinking about just the time you've been in the sport so far. Like obviously you have this really decorated OCR Spartan background as well, but in the time you've been in this sport, talk about any areas, maybe one or two specifically, uh, areas of your training philosophy and your training execution that have changed the most year over year? Like, is there anything you're doing in 2023 particularly different than you were doing in, say, 2022 or 2021 as you were competing in the sport? I, I'd say the training in the past two years has been relatively similar. I think post COVID, I settled on a system. And we made that system into an app so everyone else can can follow it as well. And I was so happy with it, that, that that's how I've trained for the past years. And it's really worked. And um, I do have ultra plans as well. And that's what I used into CCC, which I, again, found really worked. So that's what I'll be using through into, into Western. Uh, but before that, I think I've gone from, I've gone through the, like the full range from, not running before I was 20 really and then discovering running and just doing it for fun and entering to some races and then getting good shape just because you're doing it for fun in your racing to then moving to Norway and becoming a full-time athlete and then again not really having a training system I remember when I first moved I I was just running to and from work uh, in London and then I moved to Norway and it was like okay now you have to go for a run it's like okay but what I have to just plan a random loop like that normally I just ran to get somewhere so even that was alien and all of a sudden I didn't have a full-time job so I could train as much as I wanted and I gave myself shin splints pretty much almost immediately because I ran too much so from there I decided that I had to start actually reading up on training and not just getting fit randomly or accidentally which I still do think a lot of athletes do I had to really find a system that worked for me and that's when I started training more like 
what I thought of as being 80-20, quite strict and training, more like a roadrunner, I guess, because that was the books I was reading. That was the the influence I was having. Um, so then I, I, I started to sort of like see some sort of improvement, but still there was like a, a big amount of, of improvement that I wasn't getting. I really felt like there was more potential there. And then moving up to Romsdalen and being exposed to people like Eden Nielsen and, and Killian and uh, seeing how they train and they train specifically for running in the mountains and then seeing how different it was to what I was doing and it was more fun and then discovering the skiing obviously as well and a lot of random stuff along the way really made me really like sit down and think like what is the training philosophy that I think is best for mountain and trail running what works best for me and also what would work best for my wife because it was it was her that was giving a lot of input as well she listens to a lot of podcasts reads a lot of books so she was my sounding board and she's given me as much as I've I've given her I think and then we've ended up with where I am now with a relatively sort of like large base of experience and knowledge and a lot of like experienced athletes around me that I can use as sounding boards and, and not copy their training, but sort of get um, ideas from. And I think that now I, I'm like relatively well prepared for, for most trail races. And I know like what works for, for most people and are relatively knowledgeable. So it's been fun to go through like the full, the full range. Maybe it's already something we've covered but is there anything you believe strongly about training for these races like CCC, like UTMB, like Western States um, that's worked for you or that you think will work for you and you just believe it strongly, but uh, it might get challenged or debated by some of your peers or by fellow coaches out there? I don't know. I think that's a tough question because I don't really know if anyone would question how I prepare for things because... You, you can prepare for these trail races in, in like a multitude of different ways and then all turn up and have relatively similar results. I think one thing that was relatively different to my training, uh, to, with my training to everyone else's this year especially, was how low mileage I had. And I, I do generally feel like you can have really good results off low mileage if you prepare in a specific way and take some workouts really specifically. Then you can do less miles which um, comes with less injury risk and you can just feel happier and healthier and really stay on that healthy side rather than really, really fit side of the, of the line, which I, I much prefer. Um, but maybe that is relatively specific to me. Maybe I'm just like with my, my gammy foot and my, my body just doesn't like running big, big miles. But also I really enjoy running and I feel like sometimes if you run too much, one, it's not healthy and two, it's not actually that fun. So, I mean, pretty much everyone would have gone out and done a big training run or at least a back-to-back training run where they're covering at least 100K in one day or, or two days. Whereas I think the longest run I had was like 47K and then the mileage was generally quite low uh, for those those months running up to it. But I felt like after the slightly sort of like weird spring I had, that's what was right for me. And that's what I needed to do to be best prepared, but also just be happy, healthy and turn up and feel strong and like myself, which I thought was more important than being 1% better prepared by trying to push over the line far too much. 
One more, uh, one more question in this area. You talked about this need to quote unquote specify your fitness once you get to the highest levels of the sport. And I want to unpack this a little more because when I first heard you say that the first thing that came to my mind is, okay, he means you need to specifically commit long-term like multiple seasons to a particular distance to a particular terrain arena. And that's what he means. But then I realized, okay, maybe it could be like a particular portion of the season. How do you think about that? What are the, what is the real answer there in terms of whether an athlete needs to become a specialist at a race like CCC? Is it just a particular part of the year? Am I off base? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think that long-term specific training is just what happens naturally from what races you're entering. And if you enter sort of similar sorts of races, then you naturally just become a different kind of athlete. So I think that happens on its own. But I definitely think uh, long and hard about how I can specify, specify my fitness on the short term. So I can build a really big engine, especially during the winter skiing, and then for the shorter races, something like six weeks before, I really want to then turn that that big engine I have and make it as usable as possible for the race at hand. So that means that um, doing a few different types of sessions, harder sessions to peak the fitness, specific leg um, acclimatization to get that sort of um, specific sort of leg preparation in. And then also um, the simplest form of preparation I can think of is having a race simulation but then not running the full distance because that's just um, unnecessary, I think. And it's going to sort of, again, raise that injury risk. So in the, in the six weeks before, say, a marathon-type race, I'll do one or two race simulations, say, like half distance and two-thirds distance, where I try and mimic everything, mimic the type of trails, mimic the climate, the altitude, um, mimic even the profiles. That means if the race has got three big climbs and three big descents I'm going to be doing it half distance but I'll have three big climbs three big descents that way you can sort of like really say to your body okay this is what I'm going to ask you to do it's a bit shorter obviously because I'm still training big training weeks I'm not fully tapered and I want to save uh, the fitness for the the big day I guess but this is what I'm going to ask of you body so sort of like here's a little taster and get prepared and then that way I can also test my race kit i can test um shoes i can test my whole nutrition plan uh and just see what works and see what doesn't work and then also um that's good gut training i guess to try and get your body to absorb the the carbs that you're going to for that length of time like you're pretty much going to test everything and have sort of like a mini race experience and i don't know that just seems like a foolproof way to really prepare and test everything and then if I can find a similar race uh, for that race simulation, then then I will do as well. And I'll, I'll look for, say, okay, if I'm going to do a marathon, maybe I could do like a, a 30K four weeks out. And uh, I have to obviously think that like that isn't the main race. I won't have the best shape for it. But normally it's hard to replicate that race feeling uh, in training. So to find a race, you get the crowd, you get the buzz, you get the the early morning wake up, you get to sort of like eat the race breakfast that you're going to have and stuff and sort of replicate it um, completely uh, normally works a little bit better. But it's hard because in Norway, we don't have Chamonix type trails. We don't have Western States type trails. So you have to do the best of what you can. Sometimes it's a boring session. Sometimes you can find a race that suits. How about when you think about an athlete like yourself, 
someone of your caliber, a professional in the sport, are you saying, or, or is a part of what you're saying that you don't necessarily need to make a race like UTMB this four or five year odyssey, or at least this multi-year project to stick your nose into and, and be in the mix to win? Can it be that case or, uh, could it be, you know, less of a commitment, more of this three to six month endeavor, you, you know, you sharpen for it and, uh, you'll be ready. I think, uh, normally with training, you, you're never going to be ready. Uh, but you can be, a, you can make yourself as ready as possible considering the, the experience you have and the base you've built. But ultimately in order to do really well at a race, it probably will take a few years because you're going to have these training blocks and you're going to build on the last one. And it's all wrongs in the ladder. So I think like in order to change your body type and to, to prepare really well for a race, it, it may take a few years, especially for the longer ones, but uh, to, to try and do the best of what you can with what you have at the time is always going to be great as well. Um, but when it comes to something like UTMB, there's so much experience which comes into play as well as fitness, both like sort of like how well you're psychologically prepared. Uh, and I mean, the fueling and the sort of race strategy is massive. And that's why in the app, we actually wrote in a sort of more like homework sessions where you say, okay, this is your race um, research workout one week. And you're going to research everything about your race, like how far it is, how long you think it's going to take. Uh, and whatnot and then the next week it might be your fueling plan workout and you're going to devise a fueling strategy and then you can actually test that in one of your race simulations which by the way will change if you're training for something like UTMB I, I wouldn't say you want to do like a two-thirds uh, race distance race simulation like four weeks out uh, so obviously you're going to have to sort of adapt all of this advice um, and probably using the ultra plans in the app if you were to have a look at that would be um smarter decision but yeah so so working on all of this uh extra stuff which goes along with it like fueling is absolutely massive i learned so much about fueling in the first time i did ccc and then to actually then go back and execute and feel like i executed the fueling so much better than when i went back again was really satisfying but it's just something that i wouldn't have learned unless i'd done the race because yeah, you can do the best race simulations possible, but really it's it's when it, you get into a race situation that you learn the most. So then making sure that after every race, you, d you don't get as emotional if you don't finish it or it doesn't go as well as you think it, it, it could have. Afterwards, you write down everything you've learned and then make sure you don't have to relearn those lessons and you can enact them next time around. Switching gears a bit, in preparation for this interview, I was rewatching some of your YouTube training vlogs. You had one back in May or June where you admitted to being in sort of a, what's called a soul searching phase about the sport. And, you know, obviously the flip side of that was a few months later, you went and ran and won CCC. But I find this fascinating on many fronts because especially in your case, being a pro athlete, this is, this is your craft. This is your profession. Um, if you are either in a low spot or in this state of basically questioning what you're doing, just given the pressure around you and the contracts that you're in, it, it doesn't seem to me like you have that much time to process it all, to step back, to figure it out, and then sustainably get back on the horse. So I guess the question for you is, now that you've been through it, how do you efficiently work through sorry, how do you efficiently work through these negative 
outlooks and get back to a place of like, yeah, I'm stoked on this and yeah, I'm going to go win CCC. Yeah, I think uh, like the the approach for me was to really sit down and, and think what's changed from before because before I had a relatively healthy relationship and was managing quite well. So what what had changed and why was I in this sort of like negative cycle but I do think generally for me especially I put a lot of pressure on myself I feel like there's more pressure being put on me and it comes in cycles and you do some good results you get more pressure and then it gets to you and then you do some poorer results and then you think oh I'm not as good anymore no one's expecting anything of me and then you get some good results again so I I automatically think I go through this kind of cycle but it is something that I've seen I, I do know that I don't I'm not dealing with things as well as I could but then um, I also don't think that I'm a stereotypical professional athlete. And I don't think that lifestyle or that approach really suits me. So I definitely think that getting a manager, I was sort of like felt like I was being forced down that stereotypical route, which didn't suit me. Um, and I also just felt like there was just so much pressure. And I guess it was coming from myself, but just so much crap that goes along with races. And I really forgot the fact that we are literally just following little flags and someone's put them out in the woods and we follow them. And then at some point there's a line and then they say stop. And that's actually as simple as it is. Why do I have to sort of like build it up as such a big, as such a big deal in my, in my head. So trying to, trying to get back to that. It's meant to be fun. It is just such a simple thing. We're just running through the mountains and that's what I needed to uh, try and get back to. But then also running, it used to be like my absolute joy, like it was my escape and now it is my job. So how can I how can I fix that? And I found I needed something else. I needed a hobby. And I felt like skiing was that hobby for me. But then training with Petter and Killian and having pretty bad weather here, there was a lot of really like just reps in the rain, which was just tough psychologically. So skiing was less fun. I, I, I guess scrambling and Climbing was also the sort of some sort of, sort of form of escape, but then that's where they're very weather dependent. So I just needed something else, and then I thought, well, what I wanted to feel free, and what epitomizes freedom, and I thought, well, flying. So then I thought, well, okay, why don't I just start paragliding? Because that way, then I at some point when I get experienced enough, I can use it as part of my training. I can buy a lightweight wing, I can hike up, I can fly down, and I can do schemo of the summer. So what I did in the summer was about four weeks, five weeks out from CCC. I went to Sweden. I took a paragliding course and I pretty much almost didn't run. Like I just didn't think of myself as a runner or as a professional athlete. Looking back, I did actually do three pretty good runs. And in that week on the way home was when I did that longest run ready for CCC, that 40, 47 K. So I was still running, but it was just sort of like a complete break from, from everything. And then when I got home, I found... I had that extra energy, uh, overskud is the, the Norwegian Scandinavian word, which I'm not sure if there's like a good word for it in, in English, which is just you feeling like you have extra energy. There's extra, I don't know, energy uh, there. And I, I need that for everyday living just to feel happy and healthy. I can't feel like I'm butter spread over too much bread. And, and if I can have that sort of feeling going into a race, I'm always going to race way better than if I'm just a tiny bit better prepared, but completely destroyed. So I really felt like that week off was really good because then I had two, three really good weeks of training and then race CCC. So obviously there's a taper there because you arrive in Chamonix and you don't go out and do a bunch of training, but really just to maintain that sort of like 
relaxed sort of training mentality and then roll through the race. And uh, looking back on it, that was like one of the main reasons because I had such a big rest week earlier. So maybe it's sort of like a preemptive taper strike, you know, like it's a pre-last training block, big rest week. Um, and that, that really worked and I got a lot of experience from it and I learned to paraglide. So now whenever I'm feeling like life's a bit too much, I can go out paragliding. Obviously, actually, that's quite weather dependent as well. So it doesn't really work out that way, but it's still something else. And it's a new skill I've learned and I really enjoy learning new skills. So I've got a lot from it and um, it's going to be really cool if one day I can go and do big projects and fly around as part of my training. So having that sort of schema of the summer would be a, a really cool thing and really good for my, for my fitness. As I'm listening to that, I think the big takeaways for me are, you know, in these times of just doubting your current circumstances or needing to reconfigure them in some way, skill acquisition is a great resort. Trying something new is a great resort. But, but it's also funny to me because it seems like most of the time you're up, like I recall you sharing this one moment a while back, maybe it was a year ago, you were like, okay, there was this one day I went to the movies. It was this two hour movie. And honestly, I couldn't wait for the movie to be done because I was so stoked to get back in the arena and to keep training and to keep racing. And I thought that was, that was equally beautiful. That's such a, it's such an uplifting way to look at the sport. Yeah, I think I definitely, um, sometimes when I start to feel like, oh, this is just too much running's not fun anymore. Then I, if I do go to the movies after two hours, normally I do think, okay, this is pretty boring. Like, really, I do love to run. I, I am looking forward to running. So sometimes you just need that tiny little break where you just take off all pressure. You just completely forget that you're an athlete, forget about all expectations. And then at some point you will probably realize, I actually enjoy doing this. And this is actually the lifestyle I do like. Uh, and I think it's the lifestyle that's right for me. And I think that's, that's important that that's, it comes like from that feeling of rightness rather than being forced into it. Because if you think every day, oh, I have to train, there's this big race coming, oh, I have to train. It really takes away a lot of why I even started running. So I need to make sure that I do actually enjoy running. And that is something I definitely do because I mean, it doesn't have to go that much time before I just feel like going out running again. All right. And with the caveat that I am heavily biased here, I think that group training environments are amazing. I think that like they have the effect of automatically raising your commitment level. They bring you to this new plane of fitness and execution. Uh, I was just talking with Brad Stolberg. He's espousing the recovery benefits of being in a social environment. Um, and what's cool in your scenario is you are world-class and you train with other world-class athletes like Killian, like Petter, etc. There are other notable people in that Norway orbit like Stian. Has that generally been a net positive for you? And, and, and not necessarily about your scene in particular, but academically at least, do you recommend that more athletes in our sport insert themselves in these types of environments or are there any possible negatives to consider? I think for me, definitely it's 50-50. Like, uh, Petter is a herd animal. He really likes being around people. Uh, I'm going to go and get a power lead because I'm running low on battery. <laughs> oh, so uh, group training. Um, yeah, I can definitely see that there's loads of positives. And for me, definitely some negatives. And I guess it really comes down to what's worked for you. And um, whether you thrive in that sort of group environment. I mean, for me, I've always only ever retrained really alone. And 
I found it was really powerful to be around other athletes, but in very small quantities, just to see what they do, see how much um, effort they put into training, see how um, committed they are. But then I can't do every workout with people just because I thrive off being alone. I was always like a bit shy when I was younger, not really like a group type person. So that's just sort of how I like to train. And I don't know, just like, again, it's that pressure thing. I want to know that I'm doing this because I enjoy it. And I want to have like a bit more control over my own training was when you're in a group is usually only ever like sort of like one speed and someone's working either too hard or too easy. So I really do find that like, yeah, in small quantities, it's great for me. And there was loads of benefits from training with Petter and Killian over the winter, but then also a few drawbacks, like me and Petter are generally working a bit harder on the skis to keep up with Killian because he's just so efficient at skiing and we aren't. So it's kind of like, it is, it is tough to, to do that. And then also when there's a big difference in the type of athlete you are, it can sometimes be easier because, okay, they're faster when it's steep because that's their strength and I'm faster when it's flat. So that means we can train together and I don't expect myself to hold with them. Whereas, say, for instance, me and Petter, we are so similar that it's, like, painful because I just feel like we're, we're racing each other a little bit all the time, even though we really try not to. And then Petter has this thing as well because he he's comes from a skiing background where they always train together. So I don't know if he means to do it or not, but he then at the top of each interval, interval he'd say, so how was that for you? And I'm like... Uh, is he asking how, how much effort I'm putting in so he can judge whether he's putting in more effort, kind of? And it just feels like it's just a bit of extra stress. And sometimes I just like to go out, get my training done, try not to even think of it as training, to be honest. Like I've got this thing that interval training shouldn't be called interval training. You're just going out and pushing harder and then pushing less hard and taking a break. It's not like this big thing, whereas it, I guess he comes from a much more structured background and it's kind of like a really set thing so I don't know like uh, I think definitely being around other athletes has raised my game like ridiculously and has made me see what's possible which is really important but then also I do like just going out and getting the work done alone and making sure I can maintain that that healthy balance that I feel gives you those long-term improvements that you need I definitely think that in the spring and winter I went out and did some workouts when I should have just had one more day's rest and then it would have gone fine. But I just sort of like pushed it that sort of day too early far too often. And maybe that's because the invites were coming through about training with other people and me wanting to say yes and not not be left out. So I certainly learned a lot from more group training during last winter and I'm going to implement a lot of those lessons learned obviously this winter, but then training for a completely different race, it's obviously going to make some sort of like differences anyway. So interested to see how it goes and how the weather affects things too, because here the weather affects training more than anything else. So um, it'd be cool to just see, see what winter we get. You know, it's, it's an interesting dilemma to me. And again, this is just me as an observer, me as a fan, but when you have someone like yourself who is sort of in rare air, I'll call it in the sense that like there's so few colleagues or contemporaries you have in the sport that are at your level. Um, do you like, who do you turn to, to help you get better? It's a, it's a very small cadre of athletes, right? Like, do you find that to be a challenge to, to get better year over year with, or like, do you need that group stimulus or do you find that they're 
are still things that you can do in isolation, that you can self-motivate yourself on, that'll make you better regardless of whether you utilize that group environment or not? I think it definitely really helps to see what's possible. And when you do just even go out training alone and you think, Jesus, I've been going at it for a few weeks now. I haven't had any rest. This is getting tough. And then you see Ida out again and you know she's been going out training more than you, probably doing more double days. And she's just out there again, getting it done. You think, well, what I've done isn't that bad. So I'm just going get to get it done as well. So even if you're not training with people, just to see them out there and see the, the commitment they have is great. But I certainly do feel that within endurance sports, there's a lot of um, inroads being made just generally like for, for most of the sports, like definitely things like, like Blumenfeld and like Ironman and stuff, just to see what they're doing, the um, training they do, and then the sort of like how they deal with fueling and stuff. There's so many lessons to be learned from all other sports and then implemented within trail running. So to be honest, when I look at those guys, I hardly feel like I train whatsoever. I just feel like I'm going out and having fun all the time. So um, just to see what's possible on that front, again, it's like, it's eye-opening and um, it's pretty powerful. So I think like both within trail running to look at athletes, but then in other sports as well. Thanks to Brooks for sponsoring this episode. Head over to brooksrunning.com forward slash single track to check out their high point collection and new and improved Cascadia 17 shoe. I've been using Brooks products dating back to a 2014 through hike of the Appalachian Trail when I used three pairs of their Cascadia 8 shoe to cover the 2,190 mile trek. Again, head over to brooksrunning.com forward slash single track to check out what they got. Also, thanks to Oladance wireless Bluetooth headphones, which deliver 19 hours of battery life, superior sound, the ability to still safely hear your surroundings, and an open ear design so you can wear them for long periods of time without developing ear pain. If you're interested, head over to oladance.com forward slash ST and use code ST in all capital letters at checkout for $30 off their OWS2 headphones. With that, let's get back to the show. Do you think you would respond well to having more data in life? Like, would you go as far as like swallowing one of those core temperature sensors and, you know, slapping on a continuous glucose monitor, wearing the Oura ring, all that kind of stuff? I think, um, I, yeah, I, I really think like the data is fun, exciting in periods maybe. And I, I think you need to sort of like, use the data and look at it and sort of like make sure it helps you but then at some points remember that feeling is the most important thing and um, being psychologically happy or just sort of like being healthy and thinking how how do I actually feel whether things are going better or, or going worse is just as powerful so I think it's really about sort of like how you combine those two things and it is really cool to hear about so many athletes which have so much access to the science and the data and the, the different gadgets and stuff, but then how much it comes back to feeling. And um, it's, just, it's just fun that, like, at the end of the day, it comes down to the athlete n- nearly always knows best and you can do so much of it off feeling. You just use the data to back yourself, back yourself up a little bit. So um, there is a balance to be found there as well. I don't know how to categorize this. Maybe it's within the comparison game, but I have heard you talk about it and I find it fascinating. Um, It's this quote unquote 
idea of brackets of athletes in the sport. Like you have the Killian tier, you've got the Steon Remy tier. Obviously you fit in there somewhere. There's similar tiers on the female side of the sport as well. And I guess this is a multifaceted question, but A, what bracket do you see yourself in? And, and B, and perhaps most importantly, or most curious to me is psychologically, like what kind of impact does that have on you? Does does the knowledge of, of where you stand in the hierarchy, for example, motivate you? Does it bring you down? How do you think about that? I think it definitely motivates me because I'm always sort of striving to be better. But then also I do kind of like forget that everyone has good days and bad days and Remy has quit as many races as like anyone else and like he's not always at his best and maybe when I'm thinking about these brackets I'm looking at everyone at at their best and I certainly do feel that yeah I went I went up a bracket at some point but then I went back down again as well and it's a lot more fluid than than you'd think so um, pre-COVID, I definitely say that I was in maybe sort of like third tier or, or bracket, and I wasn't sort of level with the, the Remy's and the Steans and definitely not the, the Killian um, up there at the top. But then um, during COVID, I managed to have uh, the operation on my foot, which had been bothering me for, for four years, and that enabled me to run more, uh, moved to Romsdalen and was exposed to seeing people like Ida and Killian and picking up some some training tips and just sort of like generally actually for the first time feeling like a proper full-time athlete and actually sort of like taking it relatively seriously. And over that two-year time, I really did feel like I moved up and sort of like dipped a toe in the Stian and the, the Remy bracket, and especially with the um, Marathon de Mont Blanc last year. I felt like, well, this is how it feels to have really good shape and to be to be fast and it was like it was great at the time and I felt like it did last a, a little while it could have lasted longer because I got COVID straight after Marathon Mont Blanc which was a bit of a, a shame but then the, the, the hardest thing for an athlete is remembering back to how you were and how you deal with that so then all year this year I've had to keep thinking oh but last year I could do this or last year I could do that and it's like dealing with that psychologically so now I'm thinking that like I'm not as fit as I was last year, but I've learned a hell of a lot more and I'm more experienced, but I still think I'm somewhere like in between brackets, maybe like I'm trying to push up into that Stian Remy bracket, uh, but like don't feel that I'm quite there, but then maybe I am. It's just I'm thinking back to last year and last year I didn't think I was in that good shape before the races either. So it's like it's really, it's really tough and there's a lot of different stuff going on, but I don't know, maybe it's just, Maybe it's just me that has that sort of like concept, uh, but I definitely do like to be brutally honest with myself. And I do like that because uh, it does keep me keep me honest. So if I am thinking I'm best in the world, oh, this is amazing. Look at me. I'm, I'm great. I'm never going to improve. So I certainly do feel that like seeing people that are better and better than me and wanting to sort of like strive to be as good as them is healthy sometimes but then also I do just need to get back to doing it for the love of it and that's that balance that I've been talking about and trying to find this year all right so you're I think in your mid-30s and I mean you look great you're at the height of your powers I'm assuming you're getting better have you thought at all about your quote-unquote runway in the sport and how many more years that you can be great in this domain like 
like, do you look at somebody like Ludo and maybe reevaluate and say, oh, maybe, maybe I actually have, you know, 10 or 15 years of high performance left. I mean, even, even reflecting backwards, like what were your expectations of how you would feel and, and how you would perform in your mid thirties, like when you were in your twenties versus the reality today? I just, I don't know. There's a lot there, but <laughs> I find this I find this fascinating. To be honest, like um, I've never made big decisions in my running or racing career. I've literally just gone with the flow, and that's how that's how it was. I started running when I was twenty. I um, I did a few races. I actually chose to do those, I guess. But then I started getting invites to do races. I'd say yes. Henrietta asked me to move to Norway. I said yes. So I quit my job. I won a few big races. I couldn't get a job in Norway. So Henrietta said, well, why don't you just be a runner? So I said, yes. So then some people asked me to go and do a sky race. So I said, yes. So then it's just been this sort of like snowball of just saying yes to doing different stuff. And obviously I have made some conscious decisions in there as well and followed what I'm enjoying doing. But that's pretty much how I've seen stuff. I've just taken stuff half a season or one season at a time and just done what I felt is right at the time. And that means I've ended up where I am, which I kind of feel is like the right place to be. Like way back, like uh, my dad could have tried to get me to be a tennis player or a golfer or something, and it wouldn't have been right for me because I wouldn't have followed that path to get to get where I'm meant to be. And that's kind of how I'm just proceeding. Like uh, obviously I have to make some some big decisions, but again, like with the Western States thing, it's just like, wow, that's quite the fun challenge. Like let's go for it and just see how it goes. And who knows if I do really well at Western, then like maybe UTMB will be on the cards after that. Like, uh, again, I don't even know if I'm qualified. So if, if Western went really well and someone said, oh, you're qualified for UTMB and I felt like I recovered well, then I'll say, well, why don't I try UTMB? Like who knows? But at the moment, I'm not thinking about that decision because it's like way down the line. We'll see how Western goes and then we'll reevaluate from there. Like who knows where I'll be in uh, five years time. Maybe I'll be racing X Alps. I'll be a professional hike and fly paraglider. Who, who knows? We'll see. With this next question, I'm curious because we're at this moment in the sport where, you know, there's a lot of different race organizations that are trying to establish some sort of, order in the sport, coherence in the sport, trying to organize as many high-level athletes on the same start lines as often as possible. And I bring this statement up because, uh, you know, you, I think you've said it at least on one occasion, but I've never really heard the rationale behind it. You've, you've said that the Olympics are quote unquote, the great killer of sports. Uh, (laughs) explain, explain this one more. I'm sure I've said something along those lines a few times. I just feels that like whatever gets made into an Olympic sport then becomes butchered into being more spectator friendly and just less fun to actually do. I mean, like climbing, it's kind of like uh, having one medal for, for speed, which I guess they kind of made up for the Olympics anyway, bouldering and, and lead. I'm not a climber, so I don't know much about this, but it just felt a bit wrong. It didn't feel like that was climbing, like, when you think of actual rock climbing or going out and like doing actual rock climbing, that's, that's not really anything like, it, especially the, the speed element, which I didn't really think was climbing whatsoever. Schema or ski mountaineering has just been made into an Olympic sport, but they, they axed the individual race, which was actually something like ski mountaineering, where you skinned up a mountain, took your skins off, skied down, then skinned up another mountain. And now it's just going to be the um, mixed relay and sprint. And sprint is literally three minutes 
pretty much on a ski slope where you you go up on your skins you put your skis on the back and then you run on some sort of like man-made stairs in the snow put the skis back on go another sort of 30 seconds or something rip the skins and then ski down all on a on a ski slope like how is that ski mountaineering and when you look at like other sports like it's like track running isn't really like running like it's not like how running used to be where you just went out and run which is more like trail running um i don't know uh, throwing a javelin i guess that was like hunting with a spear like that's not like trying to hit an animal with a spear either is it like i, I can't think of that many sports where the the fun and the joy and the the sort of like actual purity of the sport has been really well maintained uh through into the olympics so if trail running was main olympic sport and they said okay we're going to do five laps of the mountain biking track that they make which isn't really mountain biking either really it's not really a mountain um then i just think that would be a little bit upsetting like one of the great things about trail running is or mountain running especially like they're all different sizes and shapes and different sort of like things like there's no two trails which are exactly the same and that's why you can't have one race which will just crown the best because they're all completely different and that varied variety is really something that needs to be um looked after because that's sort of like one of the the great things about about trail running and mountain running this is another sort of miscellaneous random question but uh besides someone obvious like killian or you know we've talked about petter a lot in the sport of ultra trail running, who's who else's training are you most interested in right now? Like, who are you maybe following on Strava? That's a new addition, and you've just been seeing their their body of work build up over the years. And maybe you're saying to yourself something like, "I want to, I want to deconstruct that. I want to, I want to better understand what they're doing over there." That that's pretty interesting to me. Who comes to mind? Uh, I'm not sure if there's anyone new, but there's certainly athletes which I follow and I think like, well, they train completely different to me. Like how the hell can that work? But then just trying Like who? Like who? Uh, let's just say Zach Miller because uh, he's an American. So that's always fun to talk about. Me and Zach can stay up like late into the night talking about gear and talking about training because like, I know he, he loves it as much as I do, but we train almost like in completely different ways. But then he is training for much longer races, but then so am I, I guess, as of as of in a couple of weeks' time. So Zach will go out and do a lot of miles at pretty much the same speed pretty much all the time. And maybe closer to the race, he will do some sort of interval-type sessions. But again, it's it's relatively simple. But he can just do that and he can just grind out and he can just do week after week of pretty high mileage and just be happy. And I think this is something that like is a great um, trait in some runners is just that ability just to be like, yeah, it's good. Yeah, just go out running, training. It's great. Whereas I've always been a bit more calculative like and sort of questioning, oh, wait, maybe this running is unnecessary. Maybe it's just going to sort of maybe get me injured. Maybe I should do this, which is a bit more specific or do that. Or I could shorten this session if I do it like this and stuff and try to sort of like have different types of sessions and really have like a big uh, sort of like system in place, a very flexible system, but there is a system there. And Zach, I'm sure he does have a system, but I can't make head and tail of it by watching his Strava because it's like 20K here, 30K there, 20K here, 30K there, pretty much every day at four minute 30 kilometer pace. Uh, which is it's cool and it really does work. It's just I don't think it would work for me because it's just far too much for my body, I would have I, I thought. 
And reading into a lot of ultra runners, it does seem like that is like quite a theme, like especially when I've talked to Jim, he said, yeah, I just run a lot, like pretty fast, but not too fast. And it's like, oh, okay, so you just run a lot. And I guess like maybe uh, Jamon and Katie shied sort of similar, like they have got some sort of um, system in place and uh, but it's just sort of like a lot more sort of long lots of mileage, whereas I've always been coming from a more low mileage background. Uh, but it's also fun to see how everyone's training changes and adapts, and it's really cool to see how Jim really tried to embrace the European schema kind of uh, culture over the past couple of years, obviously really influenced by Francois, and it's just like fun to then to see how he's doing with that and whether that's like he's seen it's worked or not worked and how stuff changes. Well, following up on, on Jim and Zach there, and I think you are a good person to ask because you've, you're wearing both the coaching well, following up on Jim and Zach there, and I think you are a good person to ask because you wear both the coaching hat and the athlete hat at various times. Do you feel any strong sort of opinions as to whether an athlete of Jim's caliber or an athlete of Zach's caliber is leaving any performance gains on the table by self-coaching themselves and sort of just going out the door and again, this is not necessarily in their personal cases, but for people that have chosen this path, sort of ad-libbing it as they go in the same way that, you know, uh, different philosophies work for different athletes. And maybe this this also applies to varying levels of guidance. Like, what do you think there? Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't even know if Zach or Jim have coaches. I don't think Jim does. I don't know about Zach for sure, but I, I don't think Jim does. I think Jim has largely if always been self-coached at least in the last like seven to eight years i think um you can get really far self-coaching as long as you have sounding boards and you're looking at other athletes and you're um you're just like thinking really clearly and i think this is like a big problem sometimes is how the emotional side can get so intertwined and it's like really hard to sometimes be unemotional and say no you need to do this long run even though you don't want to but then also more often than not the other way no you need to stop training and then you will improve because you're you're wearing yourself too thin you're getting some niggles you could get injured sometimes it's like that side of things that i could see being really powerful to have a coach someone just say no stop it like you've done you've done enough so you don't go on and, and damage yourself so it is really sometimes about sitting down and thinking like from outside the box and looking at yourself unemotionally and say should I be resting more or should I be training more and this is like the age-old question that drives me mad that I really try and think am I doing too much or am I doing too little and it's just like it's terrible to then try and then actually go out and get the training and be unsure as to whether you are doing too much or too little I mean, the beauty of doing too much is at least you know you've done enough at some point and then probably gone over over and above, uh, which isn't a good thing. But it's it's really hard to go out and ex execute a session really well and actually be judging as to whether you should even be out there running because maybe it's just it's just like you, you, you're you not going to gain anything from it. And if anything, it might uh, make you worse. So it's just, uh, I don't know, it's a headache. What are you a top 1% consumer of and by this i mean what is something you watch or you listen to or you read about a lot that you feel uh you do more than most people on earth i generally feel like i think differently to most people for some reason like i i think uh perhaps 
uh, it's not really about consuming anything, but I, I really think about the consequences of my actions, possibly. So if someone says, oh, why don't you get a dog? It's like, yeah, I'd love to get a dog. But then I travel a bit. And I don't want to sort of then try and find someone to look after the dog and this and that. So I think I think long and hard about sort of like the implications of, of decisions. And then that's why the lifestyle I have now seems to be right for me and seems to really work. And I think I take that to the nth degree and I'm really quite analytical about everything. Um, but in consuming, I think food, maybe, I think I consume a lot more food than most people, especially sourdough bread. We started that in Corona and um, generally a hell of a lot of sourdough bread and generally quite quite a lot of food. And even compared to some other athletes, like I, I'm amazed sometimes with how little some people eat and how much they seem to be able to train. But I think that's also trying to have that sort of happy, healthy um, body rather than that sort of more run down body. I think my uh, metabolism is just firing a little bit heavier than other people. So I just consume a bit more, which in some ways is kind of bad. Like I'd love to be able to go out and do a fasted six hour ski like Killian does at the effort level he does. But then in the races I'm doing, I always get access to gels. I'm not like if I was going up Everest and I could literally only eat one gel in 10 hours, it would be really handy to be able to function that well with so little calories going in. But for me, it's not that necessary. So I think to have a slightly higher sort of like metabolism isn't, isn't the worst thing in the world. I was just going to say, especially I have to imagine during the ski season where you must be putting in on some weeks like 30 to 40 hours of training. Is there enough time in the day to get in the calories you need? I have to imagine food prep takes a long time. Sitting down for meals as often as you might have to takes a lot of time. You're probably needing to replace six, 8,000 calories a day. How are you doing it? Yeah, I guess um, eating crap maybe is like, I think like I've always got this sort of idea. I have got such an unhealthy diet because I eat so much crap. I don't eat enough fruit and vegetables. Then actually at some point I realized I probably eat enough fruit and vegetables for a normal person. And then I need a lot more calories and carbs, so I'm eating some crap on top. So generally for like breakfast, you'd end up having like a normal healthy breakfast, but then there'd be bread slice of bread slice of the bread slice of peanut butter and jam in like an inch thick on top, and you just sort of like hammer those down. And the more skiing I'm doing, the more hungry I am, the more bread slices there are with peanut butter and jam on kind of. And I've always been someone that's not much of a foodie. I've just liked consuming bland food in in vast quantities so it doesn't suit me um it's not it's not so bad to have to have to eat more and i generally do enjoy like some unhealthier food so it's not the worst thing in the world uh, but definitely i think fueling actual sessions became more important in the past two years and i realized the power of of specifically fueling sessions and i did get a glucose monitor for like um I think it was like a month there was uh, they were at utmb two years ago and they were giving out some and I, I i learned a few lessons straight off the bat with that with like especially timing around fueling and if i was say for instance do like the classic like sipping on energy drink for 30 minutes before a workout i found by the time i'd done my warm-up then and actually started the workout i was actually on more of a dip with um my sugar levels so then i found actually for, for workouts it's better just to have nothing and then the moment just before or five minutes before you're actually going to be pushing hard, bang a load of sugar or like a massive spoonful of honey or something like that, and then give your body the signal by running hard to say, we need this high blood sugar levels because we're going to run hard now. 
And then that worked out a lot better for me. So there was a lot of lessons learned there on fueling and also just how recovery is so much quicker if you fuel actual workouts. And being trail runners, normally we say go up a thousand meters, and then we go down a thousand meters and you might fuel the upper thousand meters and then say, well, I'll be at the car soon. So I don't need to eat. But actually that downhill takes so much longer than you think. And you'll arrive at the car being pretty depleted and that will like really lengthen recovery time. So it's better to fuel the entire session, even though you're going downhill, you're still going to need to fuel to, to, to kickstart that recovery. Fascinating, especially the timing takeaway from the glucose monitor. I find that fascinating. Yeah. And also I like, there was a few things I did come up with that. Like uh, one thing which I've kind of modified and done differently and stuff. And I'm not sure if this is like even healthy or good for you, but for, for many races, like, when I, I, I like looked at the numbers uh, with the glucose monitor and realized that like for carb loading, you should get your blood glucose up and then try and keep it relatively high, not too high and not too low and not keep spiking yourself. So then actually the day before a race, like that was almost impossible for me. I, I, how can you eat a meal and then not spike and then trough afterwards? So then I realized, well, if I eat every 15 minutes, then I keep my levels up the whole day. So then that was what I was doing before races the day before. I'd eat something every 15 minutes to so say like if if I was in a like press conference, I'd have a bag of Haribo in my in my pocket and I have two Haribo every 15 minutes. But then also try and have like that cookie that you've really been wanting for like the weeks before, but you've not been having. Then just have that cookie. But instead of eating the whole thing, which will give you a big spike, spread that cookie over two hours. So then actually when you read on like say Morton, I think they say like drink, sip one of our um drink mixes the day before and I realized the word sip yeah okay normally sip and then after an hour it's gone or two hours it's gone but actually if you sipped it all day it would be broken up really gradually so then that's what I've tried to do just sort of like gradually consume um carb heavy stuff throughout the whole day and then eat more normal meals like I've really never found this massive pasta dinner the night before a race works because it just screws up your stomach and your stomach's just not used to it so finding different ways of trying to sort of like raise that glucose level uh but not sort of like give yourself massive spikes or make yourself really really heavy and sluggish and crap super cool okay maybe uh two more questions before we close up and this question is based off i think what you've really been saying all podcast and maybe you already have the answer um are there any other current obsessions that you have specifically within the running sphere like it could be about a particular race it could be something inside a particular training methodology particularly interesting athletes some other phenomenon happening like what else has been on your mind that you keep ruminating on you keep cycling through you keep pulling information from what comes to mind for you I think for me at the moment, it's a lot about trying to find the balance. And I really did find that like running was taking too much of me and I was just getting too invested in it. So again, with the paragliding, just trying to find something else. And actually at the moment I'm on, I've gone back to being just like almost not an athlete. So I'm living like a normal person with a nine to five job. I haven't actually got myself a job, but I'm working on the house. So we've redone the roof, we're redoing the walls and we're going to do the windows. And I've been doing that for three to four weeks now. So I'm pretty much working 7.30 till four in a really like physical job. And then in the evening trying to do a session. So I'm still using the app, but I'm having to use it in like a way that I could see a, a more normal person with a nine to five job using it. And that means I'm having to sort of 
do less training but then the training i am do have a really good quality to it but then also just sometimes just being tired like one day i finished and i said okay i'll eat something then i'll then i'll sit on the couch for like five minutes or half an hour then i'll go out training and i woke up like an hour later so then like i couldn't train that day so that's just how that's how it is sometimes you just need to you need to roll with what you have and I haven't done that for so long because running has been the focus for me for, for so long now. It's kind of like just having this different lifestyle and this different way to approach is um, fun and it's sort of uplifting. But then I can also see it being maybe slightly less effective. So it's just going to be a good experiment through to Tomplier, which is the next race in a couple of weeks time. Uh, and then... And then it's like, at least then I've had a different lifestyle for a short amount of time. And I've had a full sort of like break from being a professional runner in a sense. And then I, I think I'll be able to start the winter training block and be right back where I was over the last uh, couple of years. Like I really do think sometimes an injury is a really good thing in a sense because you get so hungry from an injury. You really want to train and you really want to get back to having that sort of like athlete lifestyle. But I think if you have that athlete lifestyle for too long, then it kind of loses its sort of like magic and its sort of zing. So I do th feel like I've, I've been rolling without any major injuries. Like I'm not asking for a major injury at all for, for so long that I needed to sort of like take a bit of a break from being having that sort of like professional mindset hammering away all the time to then hopefully enrich sort of like having it again in a couple of months time when I need to put in all the hard work for, for Western. Right on, John. This has been such a pleasure. I think uh, we got to end on your schedule. You said later this year that you will be ending your season at Templier. Obviously, next year the focal point is Western States. Can you say anything else about what twenty twenty four might look like? You know, I think the thing that comes to mind for me and maybe some listeners and viewers out there who obsess over this race is. The fact that you've won OCC, you've won CCC, and now we wonder whether the next logical step is is UTMB. Like, do you do the Western States UTMB double next year? Something else? Um, what are you thinking? I think like we'll just see how Western goes. Like that is going to be the next big big goal, and it's just going to be fun to sort of like I don't want to put all my eggs in that basket because that's so dangerous, especially when people do it with UTMB. Train all year for a race that's relatively late in the season it might not go completely to plan and then that's it. You kind of feel like you, you screwed up your year. So at least Western is so early that if I do completely screw it up, there's other chances later on. Um, but really, I am just going to focus on that and then who knows? I'm definitely not going to do CCC again. I feel like I've done CCC now. And uh, to step up to UTMB would be a uh, hell of a lot of fun, like a big a big challenge as well. It's just not one that I can really think of while I was thinking about Western, like one, one at a time. And if I was to do well at Western, like who knows? Uh, I'd have to look into if I am qualified for UTMB. That's probably a, que a question for like chat GPT or something because I don't know if anyone knows. Um, so we'll see. Take it, take as it comes. Exciting times. John, we cannot thank you enough for all of your insight today, your perspective. We'll make sure to link to all of your relevant social media in the show notes, your Strava, Instagram, training app, YouTube channel. Um, do you have any final thoughts or other calls to action that you want to leave listeners with and, and viewers with before we go? No, I think like, thanks for having me. And uh, as ever, I'll keep trying to uh, live up to expectations, which is half the problem. But I mean, 
it's 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 been a lot of fun racing over the past couple of years and it's it's fun that people sort of like find what i have to say interesting and if anyone wants to ask a question like through social media i'll always try and answer but definitely through the app we have the social wall where i'm answering questions day in day out on general training but then also how to use the app and i'm always happy to try and try and help